Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode four of the UI Breakfast podcast. And today, uh, Kai Davis is joining us again for a really amazing, intimidating talk on how to find your audience for a product, how to finally nail that product market fit, how to do research, etc., etc. Let's greet Kai. Hey, folks, I'm excited to be here again. Thank you so much again for having me on, Jane. Yeah, my greatest pleasure. I think the first episode was amazing, and now I'm sure we'll just nail even more superb ideas for everyone who's listening. So today we're going to talk about audiences, and we'll just share our journey, how we ended up with products that we have, and how we are trying to nail that product market fit today. So I will... Start with my story today, Kai. You're fine with that? I, I, I'm excited to hear it. So, uh, uh, what is your audience now? Who, who do you identify as your audience? So, let me introduce myself once again to our amazing listeners. So, I'm doing UI UX design for a living, and I have been doing that for over 10 years. And uh, I started working independently about f- three and a half years ago. And I started solely as a UI UX designer, but two years ago, I decided to level up my practice and called myself a consultant. I wrote uh, my first book, which is called Mastering App Presentation. And uh, I started charging like three times as much and uh, started building my authority online, started building the audience. And um As of today, I am serving the audience of SaaS founders, and I'm trying to solve their big, expensive UI UX problems. So, um, so yes, this is how uh, how my journey started. So, so how did you initially pick that audience? Or, I mean, UI UX can be pretty broad. SaaS founders is pretty narrow, and I love it for its narrow specificity. How did you go from? UI UX to UI UX for SaaS founders? Initially, uh, my first book, um, it was uh, helping designers to showcase their design work. And it seemed fairly natural to share the actual design knowledge that I have. And everybody who's doing consulting work is, of course, going uh, to serve consultants and share his own consulting wisdom. That urge is natural. However, this did evolve in time uh, to the understanding that I should be serving the audience of my own clients. For example, my first book um, was targeting designers, but then I wanted to set up some lead magnet on my side uh, website, and I discovered that it's not that easy because uh, the audience split uh, started right there. I was going to uh, make a course which was called Coefficiency, which is a course on managing designers, and it was a really successful lead, ma- lead magnet, and it has drawn a lot of people to my mailing list over the, these two years. However, the audience for a coefficiency course was different uh, from the audience for the book because uh, the book did, didn't really have very clear positioning at that time. I was going to... Um, I, I just read Nathan Berry's Authority and Nathan explained very well how to actually write a book and how to market it, but he was not very clear on the value proposition that we're supposed to be making with the products. In that regard, 30 by 500 is clearly better, right, Kai? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree that 30 by 500 is focused on 
picking picking the audience and researching the audience and touches a little bit on like making the product, but authority as a product is very focused on like, here's how you write a book. So I think the pairing of them together is super strong and that each fills not a whole, but each is a continuation of what the other product talks about. That's right. So I wrote that book and I launched it to essentially mailing list of 50, 50 people because uh, I had kind of a natural deadline for that book. I was expecting my second son to be born uh, like in the end of October. So it was super important for me to launch the complete book uh, in the beginning of October. And, you know, that list building activities that are absolutely essential to building a successful audience, they didn't happen as much as the book writing itself. However, for, for a consultant, uh, that book was a perfect magnet, um, f- f- perfect client magnet, perfect, you know, entryway to my ecosystem. So it totally, totally justified, you know, the time invested. It was great and it helped me to build the authority. However, looking back at that first product, you know, product market fit was so much not there. And I was trying to make it accessible to designers was called something like uh, a guide for uh, designers and product owners or someone like that, because I kind of realized that I was supposed to be attracting, you know, product managers and people like my clients, but I was going to attract both of these audience with the same product. And this is so, so not a good idea, such a good idea at all. Right. Oh, I completely agree. It's, it's, as we touched on in the last episode, it's a problem I'm currently struggling with just identifying there's, there's multiple audiences who benefit from what I'm sharing which audience do I pick and focus on? And I think you're hitting the nail on the head that you want to pick, especially if you're a consultant, you want to create products that appeal to your potential future clients, not your colleagues. And it's a trap I see a lot of people fall into. I'm a UX designer. I'm going to write a book for UX designers, but UX designers aren't going to hire you. You need to write the book for project managers or single founders or bootstrappers about UI and UX. And they're like, ah, Jane, she's the UI UX person. I want to throw money at her. That's right. Actually, any book will work. So even if you make that mistake in the beginning, it will still be a part of your product ladder. It will still still be your big asset. You can still make some money off it. However, if you really want to nail it with uh, clients, it would be perfect if you're, uh, if you're targeting clients, not peers like yourself. Um, and you're right. I just uh, see it all over the place with the community that people are known for their development skills, for example, but they're writing books for consultant or freelancers, mm-hmm. which is cool to practice and really great. However, not very uh, wise in the long term, as I think. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to focus on that audience exclusively as these are the people I'm going to sell my services or my products to it can end up being uh, it can end up splitting your attention between two different very important focuses right so as we're looking at your sales page today i can see that you're targeting consultants but that is a very wise and you know mature decision of yours correct mhm and uh, you're targeting consultants because, you know, you're targeting, uh, you know, um, people who are able to pay you, people who have funds, people who realize the difference between, you know, a mere expense or ret- or a big investment, which you clearly are. And 
this is more like an exception because uh, generally speaking, the audience should possess that quality, which is the ability to pay. And uh, freelancers, fellow junior designers, whoever, people like that, they're clearly not able to pay, especially when it comes to things like SaaS, when you need to pay the same amount um, every month. Mm-hmm. They just turn like crazy because they have an unstable situation, a stable financial situation, not a stable flow of clients, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're just so flaky. And this is not uh, you know, a complaint. It's just a natural characteristic of that audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons I, I used to have an offering. I still have it up, but I'm not actively pushing it right now. A, uh, a one-on-one business development, business development coaching for consultants and freelancers. And I had a few clients come into it, but we were able to do positive work for their business. But what I found is that by targeting more early stage freelancers, they were riding that roller coaster of it's a great month. It's a terrible month and we have no money. It's a great month. It's a terrible month and we have no money. And really by targeting people further along the line, it would have been more a more valuable offering for them because they would have been in a position to capitalize on it and implement these strategies in their business. Targeting it too early, uh, they weren't able to be as effective as I had hoped. Right. And whenever they have that uh, feast of famine, whenever they have that famine period in their pay cycle, they just uh, go through the expenses and they just cut them and cut them and churn from all the SaaS that they are members in. And this Mm -hmm. is not a good place to be for your product. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. And you're absolutely right. Like there's those two different mentalities. When the bank account gets low, one mentality says, I need to stop spending on everything that's not essential. I'm going to cancel all my subscriptions. I'm going to, I'm going to stop eating out. I'm going to stop spending money and stop and just get everything balanced. The second mentality, the mentality I favor and advise people to invest in is the mentality that says, okay, I'm not making as much money as I need to. What are three ways I can make an additional thousand dollars this month? And when you approach it that way and say, how can I make more money instead of cutting my expenses? Well, there's really no upper limit to the amount of money you could make. There's always a way to add more value or launch a new service or launch a new product and get more money flowing in. But there's there's a bottom to the amount of money you could cut out. Like you could never be spending less than $0 a month. And if you have no money and you're spending no money, that's not a great position to be in. But if you have some money and you're like, oh, my expenses are a bit higher than I thought, how can I make another $500 each month? Well, maybe that means adding one new client. Maybe that means launching one new product. Maybe that means finding one opportunity. Maybe that means adding one coaching student at $500 a month. And suddenly for a few hours invested, you've made up that cash difference. So I think focusing on how I can make more money is a much more value, is a much more valuable exercise than saying, how could I spend less money? Absolutely. In our family, that has been a motto for, yeah, we've been married for seven years and we've been never cutting on expenses. Mm -hmm. Never. It's always a question, how do we make more money or we just, you know, naturally make more money. And uh, it's just such a different mindset. It's great to have that mindset. Uh, It's a successful mindset, I think. I think it is. And I think it's a mindset that's very different than how people who typically have a day job approach it because when you have a day job well you're if you're on salary your income's locked in you know you're making $50,000 a year and that's it so if you're spending too much the only solution is to spend less because you can't really make more money but when you're positioned as a product owner a SaaS founder a consultant suddenly it's a whole different dynamic you're able to say i need to make more money 
well, great. There's no limitations here. I could do any of a dozen different things to make more money. I could run a fire sale on my book if I wanted to. Hey, everybody, 50% discount for the next 48 hours. And great. I just made $1,000. Wonderful. Let's move forward with that. I did a $1 sale last year. It didn't yield much money, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> but I bet it built your audience. Um, I think I made like 100 sales. But in effect, if I made like a $10 sale, it would be the same kind of uh, audience, just mm. uh, 10 times more money. So <laughs> charge more is another motto here. <laughs> true, true, true. So, uh, so going back to that product journey of mine, um, mm -hmm. I published the book and, you know, I started making money with the uh, clients and I bought Brennan Dunn's, uh, blueprint. Uh, it's a now called WR freelancing clients, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I bought the premium tier of it and got a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, one-on-one -on -one conversation with, um, Brennan consultation. And he told me, you know, just, uh, do it do a free course for 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 people who, like your clients like let's say in managing designers and put it right there in your homepage, like right there um not in a special field or like in a footer or but right there in the inside the copy and uh you know without further ado just did that <laughs> i wrote the course uh on the go uh after the launch and um it it brought plenty of subscribers and it has worked very well throughout mm -hmm. the years. It's like an evergreen thing. So from that point, I kind of realized uh, that it's better to plan your uh, products strategically in regard to the audience you choose. Mm -hmm. So I launched a productized consulting offering like half a year ago or half a year later after that. And um, it was targeting the same audience that would kind of sign up for my course and it was much better. And people ever since have been attracted by that um, productized service because it got popular and attracted traffic. So people would show up, uh, look at my productized uh, offering, and it was very limited. And they never would apply because it's expensive. However, they would see the lead magnet below and they would end up in my mailing list, which was clearly great. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure uh, you kind of experience the same traffic wave with your productized offering as well when productized consulting got into that trend a year ago, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, uh, uh, it was a burst of traffic. One failing was that I didn't and I still do not have a free course teaching what I'm doing within that productized service front and center on the homepage or front and center on that sales page. I, uh, I have what's labeled a weekly newsletter. And the joke I have with my friends right now is I call it a weekly newsletter because I said it one week out of the year, not every week right. as you would expect. <laughs> but uh, and I think what you've outlined is essential for people who are selling anything, be it a consulting service, a productized service, uh, an ebook, or a software as a service app having that free course that teaches what you're doing, teaches the audience the problem you're solving, teaches how you solve it, that methodology and that process and why your way makes sense. It's an easy, low-risk way for them to commit with their email address, pay with their email address and say, oh yeah, I want to learn more. I'll trade my email address. And now you have their permission to email them seven times, 10 times, 20 times and be like, this is the thing. This is the problem you have. This is how I solve the problem. These are people who have benefited from me solving the problem for them. And maybe they won't buy today. Maybe they won't buy tomorrow. But by becoming members of your audience, now you're able to persistently and politely market to them until they're ready to say, okay, great. You've emailed me 45 times. I'm ready to buy. 
Absolutely. But, you know, this piece of advice, it's much easier said than done, actually, because we have the tendency to share business knowledge much easier than we share our domain knowledge for some reason. Like in the beginning of my career, I was clearly, um, you know, was much more willing to share secrets of working with clients rather than, you know, just disclosing the actual domain knowledge uh, that I'm you know, doing for a living. Mm-hmm. And uh, people just end up with a bunch of products in the end. And uh, it's it's tough uh, <laughs> to make a solution, which ones are going to be a priority and which ones, you know, have to be kind of killed or sent into oblivion, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And you have to do that because your marketing attempts should be clearly targeted. You should be known for something specific and uh, your best goal is to be known known just for that. Let's say Samuel Hulick is the onboarding guy and, you know, Kai Davis is the outreach guy and that's the best kind of label you can get. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing I've learned along the way is it's okay to change that focus when you find you're better positioned somewhere else. Like we talked about in the last episode, I started out the SEO guy and then SEO for Shopify stores. And then I was like, oh no, I want to do outreach and outreach for product creators and consultants. And all it took was me updating the copy on my website and suddenly for anybody new that showed up, okay, great. It's a different coat of paint. It's a different presentation. It's a different value proposition. Now I could target this new audience. For people that already were part of my audience and on my list, I just start sending out articles about the things that I'm focused on now. And sometimes people are like, nope, not what I'm looking for. I'm going to unsubscribe. And in that case, it's fine because they were part of the old audience. They weren't going to buy the new thing I'm selling anyway. It's okay to lose them as a member of that list. Some people stuck around. Some people bought my book when I announced my book. Some people ended up overlapping because I was still solving that same problem just in a slightly different way. So I think it is possible and it is valuable to be able to change your audience focus and say, hey, this is what I'm doubling down on. This is who I'm talking to now. Everybody else who's already on the list, they have that choice of unsubscribing or sticking around. And there's no there's no real problem with somebody unsubscribing. Absolutely. Besides, there is always such a thing as a personal brand. And no matter what you do, there will be a few folks like your friends or closer acquaintances who are just reading things because you write them, not because of what you write, mm-hmm. even though that's kind of uh, the opposite from the product market thing. But um, building that personal brand is also important because uh, the awareness of your persona, it just grows over time, no matter what you do. And mm-hmm. if you've been out there for five years and you've changed your vector like a few times, you're still um, you're still much more famous if you've been out there for two years, let's say. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're still creating a body of work. Uh, 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 we met up in Philadelphia with some mutual colleagues uh, a few months ago. Right. And one, one of the biggest takeaways. <laughs> <laughs> what one of the biggest takeaways for me from that meeting was the idea of the intellectual property we're developing within our business, and even when we do what might be a radical switch or a soft switch to a different audience focus, it's not as if we're hitting reset on our brains and starting over from nothing. We're still able to leverage all that knowledge and all that expertise we had with the old thing, just in a new area. Like you said, you might have been writing for five years and might've switched focuses a couple of times, but you still have that authority and that clout for being out there and shipping and writing and creating things for five years. It doesn't matter that you switched along the way. You're still able to leverage that intellectual property. Uh, Ramit Sethi from I Will Teach You To Be Rich, 
I think is a perfect example of this. You go back seven or eight years and he was a personal finance blogger. He wrote about how to save money, the best credit cards, the best bank accounts. Now his brand is, I will teach you how to lead a rich life. He has products on creating a business, products on earning your first thousand dollars, products on how to get fit, products on how to be more social, products on how to uh, 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 grow as a consultant to making a hundred thousand dollars a year. So even though these are wildly divergent in some senses, but a personal fitness product from his original brand, he's been around for so long. He's built up a large audience. And from, from that, he has this clout and name recognition that gets him articles in the New York Times and interviews with uh, uh, celebrities across the board just by consistently creating things. Even if you do switch focus along the way, you gain authority. That's right. And all it takes is actually that fresh coat of pain that you mentioned. It's absolutely just a single sales page that you're going to be focusing on. And maybe, uh, not maybe, and some kind of lead magnet, let's say freebie or a free course, for example. That's all it takes to set up you know, you know, your mechanism for that new authority is just a sales page of something that you're going to be promoting and uh, a way to capture leads that come to this page. And then you just gradually become uh, visible for that effort. You just, you know, build your appearances at podcasts, you start tweeting out these things and uh, people just show up there, learn who you are and they become captured with that lead magnet. And that's all it takes to build a new kind of audience. 100%. And uh, it's important to realize that actually the most important thing is a sales copy, even though people kind of ignore that. But this is the core of your value proposition, no matter what you're targeting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. I think the sales copy is important. I mean, I, 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 I continually recommend Thrust in People's Hands, the book The Brain Audit by Sean DeSouza. It's uh, $11 on Kindle on Amazon. And it's one of the best books on writing a sales page that I've ever read. He breaks down how to write a sales page by taking the seven primary objections. The metaphor he uses is the seven bags on a carousel when you're waiting at the airport. Uh, uh, you're there and you see your first red bag come out and you take it off. And the second red bag come off. And you see all f- the first six come out and you take them off. But you're there waiting for the seventh. And you can't leave the airport until you have that seventh bag come off the carousel because it has your personal objects in it. Similarly, on a sales page, there are seven essential elements you need to address before somebody's willing to buy. What the problem is, what your solution is, who the target audience for this product is, what your risk reversal is, what your guarantee is. I can never remember the last two. But unless you're tackling all seven <laughs> of these, you you aren't able to effectively sell. And it's that copy that tells people, this is the thing I'm able to solve. This is the expensive problem I'm able to solve. This is how I could solve it for you. This is how you know if you're the right person for this. And here's how you know you could buy. So I, I highly recommend the book, The Brain Audit. I think it's worth its weight in gold. Unfortunately, it's a Kindle book, so it doesn't weigh anything. So it's... Uh, oh. <laughs> this book is totally my favorite. And, you know, my new book is called The UI Audit, which you see, you see is heavily, heavily inspired by the, UI, uh, by the Brain Audit. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought that uh, it's the best format of a book that you can get. It's really concise. It's a totally no fluff. And it just, you know, boils down to the essential knowledge on the topic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sure we could do a whole episode talking about uh, uh, different types of books and the challenges and benefits of writing a small focused book. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, going back to the product audience fit, 
whenever you start a new product, it seems to be that um, the important thing is what problem you're solving. But essentially, for your long-term strategy, the most important question is who you are targeting with this problem. Mm-hmm. And you, like, especially according to the sales safari process and other kinds of processes, you just define who you're going to serve. Are they able to pay you or not? Do they know you? And then you go explore these people, you search for their problems, and then you tie their problems with the solutions that you can offer. And mm-hmm. not vice versa. You cannot dance from a solution because this is going to be a very biased product and it's not going to sell well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I found that once you understand, I mean, like you said, the first step is picking the audience you want to serve. And I think the fundamental question for any type of any type of entrepreneur, be it a consultant, be it a product creator, be it a SaaS owner, be it anything under the sun is what type of audience do you want to work with for the next five years that you'd love to wake up for, wake up with and work for, for the next five years without any regret? And it's a hard question to answer, but I think it's where it starts. It's totally worth the investment, you know, to think uh, of your life and to answer this question. And uh, MicroConf Europe talks, um, quite a few were focused on um, finding that perfect audience that you actually like to be serving. For example, Patrick McKenzie's talk was totally about his evolution of uh, products and audiences and how he finally got to serve his uh, dream audience with the Starfighter product. And everything else has just been, you know, a series of kind of learning experiments for him. And Mm -hmm. this is the same for all of us. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the greatest benefits of being a consultant is, what might be a failure in our mind as a consultant, ah, I targeted the wrong audience. Ah, this product isn't as good as I thought. It could still be a success in terms of, well, I built a business that made me money for three years and now I've just decided to do something different. So I'm going to go do something different that you can iterate and move through it. I mean, Patrick McKenzie was the bingo card creator guy. He made a product for school teachers. Then he was the appointment reminder guy. He made a product that uh, helped hair salons and stylists and hospitals remind their customers that they had an appointment coming up. And neither one of those were who he wanted to serve. He's a software developer. He's a marketing software marketing consultant guy. I, d- I don't know how to define him well. He crosses many barriers there. But now he's working on a product that helps uh, companies hire well-qualified engineers, engineers who could think dynamically, think in interesting ways. And that's his right audience. It's not that he failed along the way by targeting these different products. It's that he tested things, he made money, and he realized, oh, this is the group of people I really want to be serving. I'll shut down those things and focus on this thing. And it's interesting that this uh, advice, when you look at someone else's path, it kind of becomes obvious that, you know, doing bingo card graders for teachers, it's not a profitable thing. But you see just your fellows committing the same kind of uh, mistakes in, in their situations. It's just a different angle or a different, you know, situation. But it's the same close-sightedness that you get when you just start it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. unfortunately and everybody has to go through it it can be a bit wiser in the beginning if you know read books and stuff that's gonna save you a few months or years <laughs> but you still have to do your natural organic learning in that regard oh yeah i i think it's a natural process to not to not know what you're doing to do things in a haphazard fashion to pick an audience and think it's the right audience and then discover it's not the audience you want to be targeting and there's no There's no wrong way to approach it. No matter how many books you read, no matter how many courses you take, until you get out there and start applying 
these ideas, these concepts, these lessons to building an audience or launching a business or building a product, you won't have the actual hands-on experience necessary to know, oh, this is what I need to be doing or this is what I want to be doing. So you have to go out there and fail a few times and commit a few mistakes and figure out, oh, I, I have a product that's targeting chefs and a product that's targeting programmers. This this doesn't seem that great. Nobody's going to buy the other product. I better kill one of these and just double down on one audience. Uh, I think Nathan Barry has a wonderful graph where he talks about early on in his business, he had a product for uh, uh, helping people commit more to writing. He had a product for bloggers. He had a product for app designers. And there wasn't a lot of overlap. So if you bought one of his products, maybe there's a 10% chance you're going to buy another one of his products. So over the course of a couple of years, he consolidated down. And now everything fits in the same ecosystem. If you buy product A, you're a natural fit for B, for C, and for D. And so you can move your way up and buy more of his products, which means each customer is worth more money. Absolutely. And once you, you know, enchant them with your lead magnet, they become your loyal fans and they stick with you no matter what you do. And that's absolutely uh, the kind of thing you should leverage in your life when you're developing products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now for me, oh, please, you. <laughs> um, for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, for me, the most valuable exercise, like we talked about earlier on picking that audience and then studying their pains. And what I mean by studying their pains is just going out and figuring out, well, what forums do they read? What blogs do they read? What communities do they post to? What Twitter groups are they part of? And then just studying them from afar. Uh, Amy Hoy in 30 by 500 uses the phrase safari for this because you're going out into the jungle and looking and seeing what the animals are doing out there. But it's an invaluable process because it teaches you the actual language they use and the actual problems they struggle with. For years, for honestly 10 years, I wanted to consistently write a blog and I'd register the domain name. I'd install WordPress. I'd pick out a beautiful theme. I'd be like, now it's time to write a thing. And I'd never write the thing because I didn't know what to write about. And I didn't realize that the challenge that I didn't realize that a great post doesn't naturally spring from your head. A great post comes from saying, oh, this is a problem out there that I could solve for somebody. I could write a thousand words about how to get more traffic or how to do better SEO. Great. I see a lot of people asking this question. I'm going to write an answer to this question. Great. There's a blog post. Same with a product. I see a ton of people saying, how do I get more traffic? I could write a product that teaches them how to get more traffic. It might not answer every question they have, but it will be worth the, it will deliver more value than the price they're investing in it. So perfect. Here's the product. So by focusing first on the audience and then the problems that audience experiences, you're able to create great content, create great products and be the natural expert they think of. Right. So uh, let me let me give you uh, an insight what happened next after the productized consulting thing, because I have two more products uh, to cover with the product market fit that I experienced in my own life. <laughs> so I released productized consulting, which was a creative direction for SaaS businesses, which is much closer to, to my uh, to my real audience. And these clients were really amazing. The productized uh, consulting practice was just, you know, it was just prosperous. It was amazing. However, I've always had uh, that SaaS uh, business model in my mind as a long-term goal. So last summer, I set out to create a SaaS for, for consultants. Listen up. The audience was consultants. <laughs> um, and it was supposed to help them onboard new clients and uh 
the name of the thing was Client on Board. And originally it was supposed to be uh, a SaaS, which looks like a bit like a Trello board. And uh, it allows consultant to juggle questions from one interview stage to another, from a questionnaire to a live interview, in order to manage all those expensive consulting questions that we are all well aware of. However, um, first uh, first uh, stage of discovery was uh, that I realized that you know SaaS is a big big technical burden that I'm not ready for because it's a big it's either a relationship with the co-founder very big responsibility or a lot of funds which I didn't have at that time uh, and I'm not technical so the first thing which happened is that I decided it's it's not going to be a SaaS it's going to be an, a training course. And then the second discovery was that I realized that I'm not going to serve the audience of consultants at all uh, just because uh, they're not a fraction as nice as the audience of SaaS founders. They have uh, less money. They're, they constantly struggle, so the recurring model is not for them, and they do not treat the, their expenses as investments. Not all of them, but uh, the majority. So I just killed that project before it was born. There was an amazing sales page, but it didn't go any further. <laughs> and I'm really happy I did. I don't know if you guys have ever heard, uh, had experience with pro projects that were, you know, prematurely dead. <laughs> but it's sometimes, sometimes it's better to, to do that in the beginning. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I know I have. I'm racking my brain to think of one. One I could share is like the first book I ever wrote. I was a huge fan, fan of this virtual assistant service called Fancy Hands, basically US-based virtual assistant. You email them and they do a thing for you. And it was wonderful and I loved it. And I was like, I want to write an ebook. I'll write an ebook about how to use Fancy Hands. And it was moderately successful in the sense that I had 500 or 700 downloads of it. And that's I, great. I mean, that's I, great. It, it was free. <laughs> so I, I wasn't making money off of it, but my entire intention with it was I'm paying a hundred dollars a month for the service. I wonder if I could get 10 people a month to use my affiliate code through the book. And even now, like I I've discontinued my fancy hands account, but once a month I'll get a notification. Oh, $15 has been added to your affiliate account. And I'm like, people are still reading that. What, where are they finding it? <laughs> but it, it definitely was me creating a product and then realizing like, wait, no, th this is a product that people won't buy. And that the people I actually ended up, and I kind of regret this, deleting that entire email list of people who opted in to get the book because my thought was, these people aren't people who are going to buy my consulting offerings. These aren't people who, these are people who are saying, I want to save money using a virtual assistant service. They aren't going to pay $50 for a book about traffic. They aren't going to pay $1,000 for a consulting session. What's the value in having them as an audience? So I realized are it you just wasn't a good you, fit. You just you're just saying that you killed a list of 500 people? I killed a list of 500 people. And uh, I, I have a twinge every time I think of it because my list right now is around 700. And I'm like, ah, could have been 1,200. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I went to AWeber one day and I'm like, I'm never going to be able to sell these people anything. I'm never going to be able to email them something that's going to deliver value to them. I've already delivered as much value as I can. Delete. And then I just put the book up with a big old download link on a landing page. So people who end up there could get the book and they don't have to opt in. And it was a great exercise in me in actually creating a thing and like laying it out in iBooks author and producing it and getting feedback from people. But it really taught me that lesson early on of if I'm going to invest my time in creating something, I want to make sure it's in alignment with 
the other things I already have, the things I'm planning on building in the future, and that ultimate audience I want to serve. And in this case, it didn't really match up with any of those things. So it was liberating to kill it off and be like, this isn't something I'm, this isn't something I'm ever going to, going to concern myself with again. Right. By the way, I have a good recipe for situations like that when you're not precisely sure if that list is not is going to be a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. But you can always, you know, join it and, you know, uh, import it into your current list uh, by sending just uh, one email, which is essentially qualifying them and giving them a chance to opt out at the very early stage. However, for example, uh, you're joining, uh, you're um, importing a list of 500 people from some promotion or something like that, and you're just emailing them and saying, hi, I'm Jane, this and that, and I'm doing this and that, and this is how I got your email. I'm going to be sending your emails about this and that. However, you're totally free to opt out right away, and I will be thrilled, but, but I will be thrilled if you stay. And, you know... For anything that people do online, a conversion rate applies. So let's say 5% click that link, but another 95% will stay on your list and they will, you know, gradually receive your emails. And even though they might not be 100% perfect for your list, they still might be a good overlap between these audiences. Absolutely. And that, and the system you highlighted is what I advocate to people nowadays. It's how I treat my list nowadays. I, I definitely do regret like throwing those people out with the bathwater and not thinking like, ah, maybe, maybe 10% of these people will be like, oh yeah, I, I'm interested in learning more about the things you do in the future, Kai. So uh, I, I learned my lesson by discarding them so abruptly. That's as dramatic as, I don't know, Shakespeare to me. It's like Martin's suicide, Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) (laughs) The list is Romeo and I am the Juliet. Ah, my list, (laughs) my poor list. Yeah. So going from that uh, poor project of mine, from that client on board, uh, this summer I had another take on products and I, this time I was completely serious about my beginnings and, um, Instead of, you know, uh, instead of doing it, no product first, I totally did it marketing first. And I'm still very much in the early beginning of working on the product itself. So I decided to write a book targeting SaaS founders. And I spent tons of time doing the research. And I spent tons of time defining their pains when it comes to UI, UX. And sometimes it feels like you're selling a sorcerer's stone that you have not made yet, but this is totally the right way to go with products, mm-hmm. even though it might feel wrong first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. And uh, Kai, as you're writing a book right now, uh, how was your approach with that book? I wanted to validate it by before. So the book comes from a lot of the lessons I've learned over the last year and a half. So I'd say about three quarters of the content exists in my mind, in reports I've written, in articles I've written, in notes I have to myself. But before I started building the actual book beyond a scaffolding of like, okay, this is what the chapters are and these are the topics, I wanted to validate that it was something that people would actually pay money for. So my approach was do a pre-sale, 50% off the final price, launch it to my list, launch it on social media, share it with my network. And if I hit $1,000 in pre-sales, okay, that, that, that's a good enough signal for me. I'd be happy to create this thing. And I just broke $3,000 in pre-sales. And Congratulations. I'm, that's amazing. Thank you. I'm, I'm ecstatic about it. 
And uh, every day my phone buzzes in another wonderful, beautiful person with a, an amazing, beautiful haircut, I'm sure, purchased a new copy of the book. And I'm like, whoa, this, this is wonderful. I'm so happy. And I think by approaching it that way, by pre by pre-selling the book and launching it to my list and saying, hey, you're a bunch of folks who signed up because you have this problem. I'm writing a thing that helps you solve that problem. If you want to get in early, get a 50% discount, get lifetime updates, you could go over here and sign up at WRAudience slash traffic-manual. And people did. And that validated to me that there's enough interest in this as a thing for me to actually make it. Had I only gotten like $700 in sales, I would have been like, "Eh, maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's not. If I only got $200 in sales, I would have sent everybody back their money and said, hey, you know what? Not enough people were interested in this. I love you dearly for your support. This isn't the project I'm going to work on. Here is your money back. Let me know if I could do anything to help you out. But I think pre-selling and validating that way is incredibly valuable. It, it, if you aren't going to run away with people's money, there's really no risk to them. And I'm not somebody who's going to run away with people's money. So it feels like by offering that pre-sale to validate it, it, it moves the risk on to me. People have already paid money for this thing. Now I'm sort of obligated to create it, which is a nice fire to have under me to make sure I get it out there, get version one shipped by the deadline. And it's also a, a, a nice way to know that I'm making something that people already want instead of creating something and hoping people buy it. I'm so on board with you because I just did quite the same thing with my book and I did 1200 in pre-sales as of today, but that's still, that's, that's still very good to me, even though that would be like one day of consulting work. This is earned by sweat and tears and, you know, struggle, (laughs) a lot of marketing struggle. Um, However, I do feel that the pre-sales, there is a little bit of the, uh, you know, side effect of the pre-sales is that you kind of exhaust that closer network of yours, of Mm -hmm. the really loyal fans. And in order to make another few grand with the sales, uh, when the book launches, you have to really do active outreach as of today, Mm -hmm. which is still in the works too. No, I completely agree with that. And the 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 first thousand dollars probably came in from like close friends, family, supporters, people who've been on my list forever, people who I just give hugs to every time I see them. The the other two thousand were people I knew, people in that looser, larger network, people I met at conferences who were like, Oh yeah, this seems like a thing that would provide me value. But you're right, it does tap out that immediate close network. And that that's I guess a good thing and a bad thing. It does force you to think about, well, how do I, how do I promote this after the fact now that my initial friends and family have supported it? In a sense, if you have, say, if, if you're charging 50 bucks for the book and you have 60 people who have plunked down money for it for that $3,000 in pre-orders in my case, well, I've got 60 people I could email and be like, I'm so happy that you bought this. Can you think of one or two other people who'd be a great fit? I'd love to offer them a discount as well. You could ask the people who've already bought what podcasts they listen to, what guess what articles they read, what sites they read, what different media they engage with. And assuming that the people who've bought already are similar to the people you'll be selling to down the line, well, your early buyers can provide that promotional roadmap for you. Hey, here are the 20 podcasts that are most popular among the people who bought my book. Let's see if I could get on 10 of them. Hey, here are the five sites they read. Let's see if I could write guest articles for all of them. Sure, but it's, it certainly gives you confidence for that further outreach. Absolutely, 100%. Right. Um, I, I feel that we did not cover your products very well in this episode. <laughs> we, 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 have, we have a couple of future episodes where we could dive into uh, my <laughs> products. But I think like we're doing a good job talking about 
what it takes to make a good product and what goes into both figuring out that audience, figuring out that problem, and then launching it to, to validate that it's something people want. Right. And I think the biggest takeaway of today's episode is that it should come audience first and you should decide which audience you really want to serve that is able to pay you and that wants to pay you and that you really would love to serve for the mm -hmm. whole life. Mm -hmm. 100%. The best way to approach it is to go audience, then problems, then solution. I have so many friends who are like, I am going to write the book about this thing. And I'm like, well, that's great. I'm so happy you're writing a book. But who is it for? What problem does it solve? And they're like, no, 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 I'm going to write the book and then people will buy it. And it's like, well, no, I think a better way to approach it is as we've harped on here, you pick that audience first, you figure out what issues they have and you figure out how to solve them in the form of a book. And then it's easier to know who you're marketing it to. There, There's that idea of product market fit in the startup world. I built a product. Now I need to find the market that wants to buy it. And I know so many friends down in Silicon Valley who have so many amazing startups and they're desperately searching for the people who want to pay the money for it. And I think when you start out with the market first, figure out the problems that the market has and then create a product for that market, it's so much easier because you're, you, you've achieved product market fit already. You're not starting with the product and finding the market. You're starting with the market and then building a product exactly for that market. Right. But there still is a lot left in refining your message to that audience. But that should be the subject for our further episodes, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Kai. Thank you for coming today. It was great. Well, thank you so much for having me on. All right. So see you next time. I'll see you next time, my friend. <laughs>